this week, I was reading a lot, a, a variety of things, and there was one particular thing that really jumped out at me, uh, this story about a guy named Phillips Brooks. Um, he, uh, back in the 1800s, it was when he lived, and he had this big plan for his life of what he was going to do. He was very ambitious, very smart. Um, he went to the very prestigious Boston Latin uh, and then graduated and went on to Harvard uh, and became a big wig at Harvard. Uh, he was going to go off and become a teacher and then a professor. Uh, that was his plan. And so he uh, you know, went to Boston Latin, went to Harvard, and then he got a job teaching at Boston Latin, which is incredibly hard, especially as a young graduate, to go back and get this job. Uh, but he thought he was hot stuff getting this job so young. Well, he very quickly discovered that his plans may not always be the best plans because his first year of teaching didn't even finish. He was fired mid-year there at Boston Latin. And now he's out there squandering, not knowing what to do because his plan was to go and be this teacher with this great resume he had. And then that just didn't happen. And so now he's sitting there waiting Waiting on God, waiting to know what he needs to do, because he has no clue where God wants him to go now, because he, he thought that's what God wanted, when in reality, that's what he wanted. And so then he began to sit and wait, sit and wait on what God would tell him to do. And as he did, he just had these feelings well up within him of failure, of failure. He wrote actually in his journal, he said, I do not know what will become of me, and I do not care much. I wish I were 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or other, I do not seem in the way to come to much now. He said, I wish I could go back and do it over again because I would change so much. He said, well, because I can't, I'm just a failure out here, not knowing what to do. And as he's in these feelings, he did begin to turn to God and ask God, okay, God, my plan didn't work. It really was my plan and not your plan. So God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And as he waited on God to show him the way, God did show him the way. And so Phillips Brooks enrolled in seminary and went on to become a preacher, a preacher who was well-known throughout, honestly, the entire nation because he became a a bold proclaimer from the pulpit against slavery during this period of time in the mid-1800s. And then, uh, in the midst of some of those sermons, Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed. And the sermons that he gave after Lincoln was killed gained national attention and were printed in newspapers around the country because of how he led and turned people to Christ in the midst of that moment. And he became known uh, among uh, uh, the world as someone who was even keel, calm, very poised, imperturbable. Nothing could rattle him. But his close friends knew that he, he, he sometimes suffered bouts of frustration and irritability all stemming from those feelings he had from when he was younger. And there was actually one occasion, a friend walked in on him. They were all looking for him, and a friend found him in the church. 
uh, in, at the front of uh, the sanctuary. The way the friend described it was he was pacing in front of the altar, in front of the pews, like a caged lion. And he walked in there to find Dr. Brooks. And uh, he said, what is the trouble, Dr. Brooks? And without missing a beat, without stopping his pacing and stamping back and forth, he says, the trouble is, I'm in a hurry, but God is not. And he just kept on going. Sometimes we emulate that very sentiment. We feel like God's not moving fast enough. God's not doing what we want when, he, when, when we want him to do it, in the way we want him to do it. And the trouble becomes when we start and thinking in that way that God's not moving fast enough. He, it's almost as though we're saying he's messed up in some capacity. But the truth is God is never slow, ever. We are just sometimes too distracted with misappropriated priorities. So open your Bibles to Psalm 21, or 27. Psalm 27. It's on page 460 if you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home. Uh, psalm 27. David wrote this psalm. Uh, and it's a very interesting psalm as he builds and builds uh, to a specific point. Uh, in writing Psalm 27, and as we go through it here in just a moment, there's much of it you're going to recognize. There's several very famous verses in this psalm. But David wrote this. We're not really sure when he wrote this psalm. We just know that he did. And we also know David faced many struggles and trials and betrayals, uh, uh, some very public, some very private. Um, as, as someone who was doing what he could to follow the Lord. Obviously not always. He stumbled and he sinned periodically, as we all do. Uh, but as someone who is striving to follow what God would have for him to do, there were naturally going to be opponents coming up against him. And in the midst of that atmosphere, David writes this psalm, starting in verse 1. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? So the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Now that phrase stronghold is very uh, strategic um, because Jerusalem itself, where David was, was the king, uh, was a stronghold at various points throughout history. Uh, and very uh, important strongholds and battles that would take place around these city-states uh, were, were some lasting months and months, some lasting years. Uh, however long a stronghold held up completely dependent upon how well supplied it was. If they had ample supplies then they could hold out for a very long time, no matter what siege was coming against them, no matter how bad it got, no matter what size army was outside, if the stronghold was well supplied, they could withstand any attack. And so when David writes this phrase, the Lord is the stronghold of my life, that's what he's saying, that if, if, if I am in the midst of the Lord's stronghold, which the Lord's stronghold is always well supplied, then I can withstand any attack and whatever comes against me. But 
I can only withstand those attacks as long as I turn to him for my supply. And that becomes the problem. We'll turn to God sometimes initially, and and then we'll, we'll get distracted and other things will come up, and then we start to turn to other things for our supply, as though we're looking for other things to distract us from the problems. We look at a substance, we look at a drink to distract us from the problems. We look at a show to binge, to to turn off our minds so we don't have to think about the problem, rather than turning to the Lord, who is the well-supplied stronghold that can help us withstand any attack. We would rather try to, I say we would rather, the enemy wants to get us away from the well-supplied stronghold. And he wants to get us to try to, uh, he wants to convince us what we really need to do is numb how we feel. Numb how we think. Numb the process rather than turn to the Lord. And so he's created all these different elements, whether it be drugs or alcohol or, 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 or you know, streaming services or social media. The, these things that can pull us away from where God is to, to, to numb what we have in him. Not that you know, everything you stream or everything on social media is bad. Not that everything in it is good. But what the enemy wants us to do is to turn to that rather than the Lord. To, to, to go over here, whether mindlessly in the doom scroll or get insulted by Netflix when it pops up and asks us if we're still watching. The enemy wants us to stay over there distracted. When the Lord is saying, you're in the midst of a fight, I'm the stronghold. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Come to me and you will find strength in the midst of the fight. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Look at verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now, as we go through Psalm 27, I'm going to show you there's uh, some specific sections here. In this first section, verses 1 through 3, the theme is the Lord protects me. The Lord protects me. He's my light, my salvation. He's my stronghold. Uh, When evildoers come against me, when adversaries and foes, they stumble and fall because the Lord's taking care of me. Though an army encamp against me, my heart won't be afraid. Even though war comes against me, I will still be confident. Now, David is very experienced as a man in confidence in battle, but he also knows his experience in being confident in battle has nothing to do with him. Even though David faced off against lions and bears, I I love the description when David goes into King Saul and he's telling him, I'm going to go and fight Goliath because none of your guys are going to go and fight Goliath. And Saul says, well, you can't do that. And David starts listing off, well, hey, man, I, I fought against a bear and I fought against a lion. And the description it gives when David, as a teenager, saying, I fought a bear and a lion, it says that he took the lion by the mane with his bare hands and he kills the lion with his bare hands. If there's anybody I want to go into battle with, it's that guy. Like, if he can grab a lion by the mane and kill the lion with his bare hands, that's a bad dude. And, and David says, this is who I am. And I didn't do that. Because I'm strong in myself. I did it because of the Lord. And so he says that when I go out there and face Goliath, I'm not going out there as an inexperienced, you know, someone who's never been in a fight. I'm very skilled in fighting, but I'm going out there and going to win because of the Lord. Not because 
my arm is strong, not because I can throw a, a stone in a sling very fast. I'm going to win because of the Lord. That's why David was able to do what he did, because he was confident, not in his own experience, he was confident in the Lord. And so when he says, the war rise against me, I will be confident. Because the Lord is with him, because the Lord provides for him, because the Lord gives him the strength, because he has turned to the Lord, as he said in verse 1, as his stronghold. And so when faced with all this opposition, he knows, if I turn to the Lord, the Lord will protect me. Look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Because this is what I'm asking God for, just to be with him more, to seek after him, to dwell in his house, to uh, uh, gaze upon his beauty, to inquire in his, just to be in his presence. Verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. He says, I want to be in God's presence because God will take care of me. He will shelter me in the day of trouble. When, when everything seems to be collapsing around me and I turn to the Lord, he will protect me. He will hide me, conceal me, protect me, lift me up high upon a rock. Verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So in the midst of the fight, he says, there I will sing and make melodies. I will sing to the Lord, even though he's having to hide me because of all this trouble, even though he's having to conceal me because of all this attack and all this war that's being made after me. I just want to be in his presence, know he will protect me, know he will take care of me, because as we saw in those first three verses, the Lord protects us, the Lord will also save us. He saves him. You know, he says there, he will hide me, he will conceal me, he lifts up my head above the enemies. I will offer in his tent, his tent, sacrifices with shouts of joy, sing and make melody to the Lord. He will save me when everything seems to be collapsing around me and I find no way out. He will save me. Not me on myself, not the backup coming in to, to take care of the situation. The Lord will save me and him alone. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says, do you, your, your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So he starts this section off here. He says, God, I'm crying out to you. Be gracious to me. Give me grace. Answer me when I'm praying to you, God. And he, sa and, and, and he says, God, you tell me to seek your face. You tell me to come to you and see you face to face, to see you in a way nobody else does, to, to, to get that close enough to you that I can see your face. And David says, God, I'm crying out. God, I'm trying to see your face. God, I'm trying to get close to you, to, to, to see your face. So don't hide it from me. Don't turn away from me. Cast me not for sin. He knows, David knows, the Lord will never leave him or forsake him. He says, oh God, you are my salvation. He says, even though my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. 
Now, David's parents, it, you know, we have nowhere in Scripture to talk about his relationship with his parents beyond when his father sent him out into the field uh, and then uh, sent him to the battle lines uh, to uh, bring some cheese and bread to his brothers. We don't know what happened to their relationship beyond that. Most likely in writing this in verse 10, David is talking figuratively rather than specifically saying, my parents ran away from me. He's saying, those close to me have forsaken me. Those that I thought were my friends, those I thought were my family, those I thought were the ones with me, those I thought were supposed to be my safety and security, they have forsaken me. They have left me behind. You can almost sense in this moment, David is writing from great experience here. Saying, I have been betrayed by someone, some people. And he gives the, the illustration of his parents. He says, someone who's that close to me, who's supposed to be that kind of person, supposed to have my back, they have walked away from me and forsaken me and left me alone. He says, but the Lord will take me in. He says, even though they have left me, the Lord won't. Even though everyone else turns away, the Lord won't. Even though everyone else will stop looking at my predicament, the Lord won't. Because the Lord sees you where you are in the midst of your struggle, and the Lord doesn't stop. He sees you. You feel like, I'm all alone. Everyone else has walked away. Nobody else sees my predicament. Nobody else sees my situation. And uh, what's that song? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows, right? Nobody knows the difficulties. And that's the truth of the matter is everybody's got difficulties. And it's hard for us to see everybody else's difficulties because we're too busy, too busy looking at our own. We don't see what they're going through. We don't see their struggle. And David is saying, everyone else has left me and I'm by myself. But the Lord will take me in. Even though I'm out here, I'm an outcast among these people who are supposed to be my friends, my family. The Lord will take me in. The Lord will rescue me. The Lord will protect me because the Lord sees me even when nobody else does. The Lord sees me even when it feels like I'm all alone. I think of Israel when they were in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt. And God came to Moses and said, I want you to go and set my people free. Get them out of slavery. He says, because I see their struggle. I see their pain. I see their difficulty. The Lord sees you wherever you are in the midst of whatever you're going through. It's the Lord who will take you in. Not only that. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now, he starts there in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. So he's saying, show me the way to go. Show me what I need to do. Show me where I need to go. Show me what I need to say. God, show me the way. Show me the way. Alyssa, go back to verse 11. He says, lead me on a level path, he says, because of my enemies. Have you ever felt like you're facing so much opposition that it's hard to see the way forward? Maybe it's too many voices speaking at one time. Maybe you're confused about where to go. But the way David writes that verse is, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path 
because of my enemies. Maybe they've messed up the road ahead and made it bumpy and made it hard and made it arduous and made it twisting and turning. He says, lead me on a level path because of them. They've messed it up and I'm having trouble, God, seeing where to go. I need to know the way forward. I'm having trouble. I think of um, Apollo 13. Y'all know Apollo 13? Ever seen the movie maybe? You know, the, the, the rocket was going to the moon and stuff blew up and they couldn't get to the moon and then it took all these geniuses to try to get them back to earth and they did. Uh, well, there's one particular moment that they're trying to do this very complicated math uh, because they don't have very much gas because stuff blew up on the, on the capsule and they, they, they could only do so many burns in outer space to get their position just right. And so they're, they're trying to do this very complicated math about how long to burn the engines. And there's a, there's a point when the guys, uh, the three guys who are up in the uh, uh, command module are having trouble because they've been awake now for four days without sleep, freezing cold, that they can't uh, read their own writing as they're doing the math. And so they radio back down to Houston and they say, we're having trouble now because we, we can't see what we've written to determine the figures that we need to know how long to burn the engines. And so the guys down in Houston say, don't worry about it. We got it covered. And so all those guys, they pull out their, um, their slide rules. Anybody use slide rules uh, way back when? A few nodding heads. Okay, there you go. Um, it's after the abacus, before the calculator. Okay, the slide rule. And uh, uh, <laughs> you know what an abacus is? It's, that's like a thousand years old. The slide rule is only like 50 years old, okay. Uh, and so they did the slide roll and they figured out how to do it. But the guys in the capsule were saying, we need help. Because of the trouble, because of the problems, because of the issues, we cannot see to get done what we need to get done. So we need help. And so they had to radio, they had to call for help. And so there's times we, not, we may not be able to see the, what we need to see to get done, what we need to get done because of all the problems and all of the trouble. And so what David is saying is, you got to call for help. He's saying, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because my enemies have messed me up. They have messed me up. I didn't know how much they messed me up until I got to this point and I look behind me and I'm like, oh my word, how did I get here? I can't even see which way is, which way is right. God, I need you to help me here. I need you to help me. He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, verse 12. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. All they say is wrong stuff. Anybody ever have somebody say something not true about you? Nobody? None of you are alive? (laughs) He says, and again, David Man after God's own heart. Man who killed Goliath and the whole nation knows about it. Man who led the nation in victory after victory after victory. If there's anybody in Israel's history outside of like Moses that they should say, absolutely, we're following this guy, he faced constant opposition. Constant opposition. He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses, liars have arisen, and all they breathe out like dragons, all that comes out of their mouth is violence, constantly. 
constantly. God, I, I don't know what to do because they're out there lying about this, that, and the other thing, and I, this is wrong, and that's wrong, and I don't have time to, to, to go point by point about all the lies because there's so many. And, and God, what do I need to do? Give me not up to their will. Don't let what they want succeed. And in the midst, and I love the way Paul, uh, David phrase, uh, frames this, okay? So this is his mindset, right? All these liars are out there, and I'm in the midst of all the violence they're breathing out against me. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Even though all this stuff is going wrong, all these liars are out there, all this opposition is out there. He says, it's like a war is coming against me. It's like the, all these enemies, adversaries are coming against me, and I, I, I'm drowning in the midst of the violence they're breathing out. But even still, I believe I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That land of the living, that is this earth. Even though all this is happening, I still believe that there will be goodness here. The goodness of God, I still will be able to see, even though all that's around me is evil. I can still see the goodness of God. I will still see the goodness of God. But he can still see the goodness of God because of verse 11. Teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. Because the Lord guides me. The Lord shows me the way. Even the enemies come and try to mess up the way the Lord has set forward. The Lord can still show me the way forward if I will only follow the Lord. And so because if I follow the Lord, then I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If I'm following all this other stuff, if I'm only going out here in the way I'm going forward and just reacting to everything rather than moving forward at a steady pace on the direction the Lord has set me on, then I'm not going to see the goodness of the Lord because all I'm seeing is how messed up everything is. All I'm seeing are the potholes. All I'm seeing are the problems and the troubles. But if I am, verse 11, being led on a level path by the Lord, then I will see the goodness of the Lord because I'm looking to him and where he's going because the Lord guides us in where we want to go. So thus far in Psalm 27, we've seen uh, how many sections here? Four sections. The Lord protects me. The Lord saves me, the Lord sees me, the Lord guides me. And thus far, though, it's all been observational. David has just looked at what's going on around him and made assessments and made prayers based on that. He hasn't given us, as a reader of Psalm 27, an instruction yet. He hasn't told us what to do yet in order to experience all of this. But he does in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, Wait. For the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The only instruction in the whole psalm. Who loves waiting? Anybody? You love waiting? It's the funnest thing you've ever experienced in your whole life. Waiting for something to happen. The anticipation that builds up is so great. You just love waiting. In the waiting room or as a kid waiting for Christmas, it, it's all about waiting for that meeting your boss said we need to have. The anticipation of that is always so great. You, you love waiting. Wait for the Lord, David says. Wait for the Lord. And the way this, this whole chapter is written is everything that came before verse 15, 14 is framed by verse 14. It's only accessible because of verse 14. 
Because of what verse 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Because waiting proves trust. If you trust God, you will wait for him. Waiting proves trust. When we try to hurry up God, we're telling him that we don't trust him. We don't trust that he will come through and deliver like he promised. If we try to force God to go faster, we're we're, we're doubting he can get done what he said he's going to get done. So David here is saying, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for him. Wait for him. The Lord protects you. Yes, he does when you trust him. The Lord saves you. Yes, he does when you trust him. The Lord sees you. Yes, he does when you trust him. The Lord guides you. Yes, he does when you trust him. If you don't listen to the Lord, if you don't trust the Lord, you won't listen to the Lord and then he, won't, he can't guide you where you need to go. If you don't trust the Lord, you won't listen to the Lord and you can't experience salvation. If you don't trust the Lord, you're not going to be in his stronghold and he won't, can't protect you. If you don't trust the Lord, you're not going to run to him and allow him to, to, to uh, uh, offer the protection that others have abandoned you for. Trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. And if we really trust him, we will wait for him. We will wait for him. Not try to hurry him up. Not try to, try to push him forward. Try to take out of his divinely capable hands what we were never equipped to handle. And when we take out of his divine, divinely equipped hands what we were never meant to handle, we end up doing far more damage to ourselves, honestly, than the, the sinfully presumed damage that was going to come or that we anticipate coming because of the waiting, the anticipated conversations, the anticipated problems, the anticipated issues, all because we have, we, we're, we're, we're playing the scenarios in our mind of what could potentially happen at the end of the waiting, and we don't know what's coming. And, and instead of waiting on the Lord, we're waiting on the bad stuff. Instead of waiting with God, we're waiting and, and festering and wallowing in, in what could potentially happen, rather than waiting in what God has promised for us. He doesn't say the life's going to be easy, that we're not going to experience any of that bad stuff. But he says, I'll be with you in it if it does happen. So we need to wait on him, or rather, better way to phrase it, wait with him. Wait with him. Trust, really, if waiting proves trust, trust really empowers the waiting. Trust empowers it. Because how long you wait on God reflects how much you trust him. How much you trust God will determine how long you wait with him. How much you trust God will determine how long you wait with him. I think of Abraham. God came to Abraham when he was 75 and said, just wait on me and I'm going to give you a, a, a son who will produce more descendants than our stars in the sky if you just wait. So Abraham waited and waited and waited, and waited. You know how long he waited? He waited 11 years. You ever waited on God for 11 years? And sometimes we have problems waiting on God for three days. <laughs> Abraham waited 11 years, you know, and then he got fed up with the waiting. And his wife got fed up with the waiting. And they sinned. 
and produced a problem that the world's been dealing with now for thousands of years. And he had to come to God, and God came to him. And you know what Abraham had to end up doing after he waited for 11 years? And he messed up because he stopped waiting? He had to wait for 14 more years. 25 total years. Who knows if the promise was going to be delivered in year 12, but he got fed up in year 11. We don't really know. We just know he ended up having to wait for 25 years. How much you trust God will determine how long you wait with him. Now, Scripture talks a lot about waiting. Waiting on God, Scripture talks about waiting more than 100 times. More than 100 times. There's actually 36 different words in Scripture for waiting throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. You know, sometimes when we're supposed to be waiting, we end up talking ourselves into the hurry-up process like Abraham did. But let me show you some of those illustrations of this, these words for waiting. In Psalm 62, it's written, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. That word literally in the Hebrew means wait in silent stillness. Sometimes we wish our kids would fulfill this, this word right here. Wait in silent stillness. Wait in, it's translated there, wait in silence. Wait in silent stillness. Galatians chapter 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what that word means, to eagerly wait. To wait eagerly with, with great excitement for what's coming. He's saying, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. That's heaven. We wait with great excitement, with great eagerness for heaven, for what's coming down the line. But there are times that we end up waiting incorrectly with difficulty. From Acts chapter 28, when Paul was on this island and he reached down to pick up a log Uh, to throw on a fire, and a snake bit him on the hand. And the people, the natives of the island, uh, were watching him. Verse 6 of Acts 28. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. That word there, they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. That were waiting, it means to wait with apprehension concerning impending danger or trouble. To wait with apprehension concerning impending danger or trouble. Anybody ever wait like that? In, in, in uh, apprehension about danger or trouble that's coming? You're waiting and so you, you, you anticipate all the trouble, you anticipate all the danger and all these thoughts run through your mind of what could possibly be going on and what could possibly be happening. Your family member didn't text you back quick enough and so you immediately go, they're dead in a ditch somewhere, they just died and, and their bodies, they're rotting and I can't do anything about it and I can't call anybody because it's only been two hours and I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go. I'm trying to ping them on Find My Friends or, or Life360 and I can't find them and, and you're picturing how bad it is and they were just got delayed by a talker Walmart, you know, and we do this constantly, wait with apprehension concerning the impending danger or trouble. But that's not how we're meant to wait. That's not what God would have for us. 
what he would have for us, how as followers of the Lord we are meant to wait, are what that word literally means in Psalm 27 that we read earlier. Psalm 27 verse 14. Remember David said, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. That word literally means to wait with expectant hope. To wait with expectant hope. I mean, imagine if we took all that waiting that we had and, uh, with great apprehension concerning impending danger or trouble and we converted it to this kind of waiting, to wait with expectant hope. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I can't wait to see what God does with this situation. I can't wait to see how God you know, can, 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 can turn this around for his good. I cannot wait to see what God's going to do. It's painful and it's difficult in the moment, and I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, we see in David's uh, description here in the psalm, he's going through great problems, evildoers, adversaries, foes, uh, armies, war coming against him, uh, liars, false witnesses, his, his, his close family and friends abandoning him. And he says, wait for the Lord with expectant hope. With expectant hope because of what's coming. Wait for the Lord, what he's going to bring, what he's going to do, because he will provide everything I need in the moment. Everything I need. And when we're operating with the Lord, we're always operating from a place of hope, from a place of encouragement, from a place of strength. And so if we ever find in our spirit anything that is not filled with joyful hope, we may very well have taken our eyes off of Jesus. Off of Jesus. We were talking about this Wednesday night in the Wednesday night Bible study. Just to give you an illustration in the room here. Just, just for a moment, picture where you're sitting on that green pew as your life. Do you ever get frustrated by your life? Does your life ever make you a little stiff? Oh, a little, you know irritated, or, or, or you see somebody else out of the corner of your eye make you a little frustrated or irritated. But what is the biggest eye-catching element in the room? How about the giant stained glass cross in the front of the room? Sometimes we get so caught up and distracted by the other stuff that we don't see what we're supposed to be looking at. Or maybe you're standing up here at the front and you're looking the complete wrong direction. You're looking at the spine of those pews and how they're off center. Every Sunday you just stare right there. And your OCD is like, when all the while you should be looking right here. There's a lit up cross. There's Jesus. And so waiting with expectant hope is keeping our eyes on the right thing. Keeping our eyes on Jesus where it should be. Keeping our eyes in the joyful hope of the Lord. Do you trust Jesus enough to wait for him with expectant hope? Do you? Do you trust Jesus enough to wait for him with expectant hope? You may be crying out in your heart, Jesus, oh my word, Jesus, I know you're cooking up something good, but Jesus, I really wish you could pop it in the microwave for 30 seconds. Like, I know cinnamon rolls coming out of the oven are so good, but Jesus, if you could just put that cinnamon roll in the microwave, it may not taste as good, but I'll get it faster. Like, come on, Jesus. 
I know that crock pot, that, that smoker's been going for 24 hours, and it's, I, I know it's going to be good, but I'm hungry right now, Jesus. David's crying for us to wait with expectant hope. Do you trust Jesus enough to wait? To wait with expectant hope. They say those thoughts that will come in your mind, trying to pull you away from that expectant hope or or that other stuff, maybe the substance or the the drink or or the distraction or or the scrolling, trying to pull you away from from waiting on the Lord and trying to numb and and remove and distract from what God has. You need to realize in the moment the strategy of the enemy and say, hold up. (laughs) I know. I know what the enemy's trying to do. I know what he's trying to do. I need to get back to where God would have me to be. I need to wait with expected hope. I need to, to look to Jesus. Look to where, where Jesus would have me look. And focus on him. Maybe physically that's something you need to do. And in the moment, what you need to do is come up here to the church and get down here and look at that stained, gro- that, that stained glass cross. Whether you need to come up here to the prayer pew during the week, you, you come up here, ring that doorbell, and we'll let you in. You come up here and pray. We've had people do that frequently, especially in these last couple months since we've had the prayer pew up. But if you just need a, a, a midday recalibration, five minutes, I just need to, whoo, that person's just getting the better. I need, to, I, need, I need a little bit of Jesus right now. Even though in the mind you're thinking they need a little bit of Jesus right now. See, I just need to be recalibrated a little bit, and I need to wait on the Lord. You need to trust the Lord and wait with expectant hope. Do you trust him enough to wait? Do you, honestly, maybe, maybe you haven't had the chance to trust him yet. Do you trust Jesus enough today to believe in him? To believe Jesus, God's son, came and died for you. For you. All your sins, all your mistakes. He died for you to pay for all those things. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Do you trust him enough to believe that? Because if you do, you gain eternal life. You gain access to all this stuff David's writing about in Psalm 27. You gain opportunity in Jesus for for all time. That doesn't mean you gain an easy life. Jesus promised in John 16. Actually, you're gaining a more difficult life now now it is this temporary world but what is coming is far better far better than what we experience here Paul actually said I'm convinced that what is coming is so much better than the bad I've got going on right now do you trust him will you trust him today maybe for the first time maybe you need to realize I need to wait on God a little bit longer in this moment and not try to pull an Abraham, not try to pull uh, with his wife Sarah, not stop pursuing Hagar, which was their problem, and start waiting on God and see what God can do in the lives of a people willing to wait with expectant hope.